With over 20 years of service to the worldwide amateur radio community, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, your all-amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. This is edition number 1070, with a release and air date of Saturday, August 30th, 2019. Please take the program to your air following the Q-Tone. Welcome. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. Here are the stories for release around the earth as we go to air with edition number 1070 of This Week in Amateur Radio. Amateurs can breathe a sigh of relief as 144 to 146 megahertz has been removed from the French proposal for additional aeronautical applications. Amateur radio resources are at the ready as Dorian is poised to become a major hurricane. The Florida Division of Emergency Management is seeking qualified amateur radio volunteers. The FCC is petitioned to open up 45 to 50 megahertz to DRM plus broadcasting in the United States. United Nations headquarters station 4U1UN is making slow but steady progress in returning to the air. The FCC resolves LED products marketing violations investigation with a consent decree. The AWRL HF Band Planning Committee is reactivated to address upcoming spectrum issues. And it has been 160 years since the Carrington event. What was it? We will have a story for you in today's edition of This Week in Amateur Radio. These headline stories will come to you in a moment along with this week's special features. We'll visit with Bruce Page, KK5DO, and get an update from AMSAT and what's new with all of those amateur satellites in orbit. Our technology reporter, Leo Laporte, W6TWT, will be here to discuss Moore's Law and its effect on tomorrow's computer chips, and will ask exactly what is high-tech. Australia's own Arnold Benshop, VK6FLAB, will talk about mentoring and the influx of new entrants into the amateur service. Our own amateur radio historian, Bill Condinelli, W2XOI, will be here with another edition of his summer-long series, Amateur Radio History Headlines. All that and a lot more is straight ahead as edition number 1070 of North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service, This Week in Amateur Radio takes to the air right now. Reporting from our headquarters studio overlooking the Hudson River here in wonderful Albany, New York, where we might be getting some precipitation for the holiday weekend, I'm George, W2XBS. And reporting from our sunny downtown studios, at least for today, in Syracuse, New York, I'm Chris Perrine, KB2FAF. And reporting from our studios in the fog-shrouded mountains of the Catskills in upstate New York, I'm Don Hewlett, K2ATJ. Reporting from our news bureau in Fayetteville, Arkansas, where the major television conglomerate and the major internet and television service provider finally smoked the peace pipe and settled their almost two-month-long shutdown. The only thing I'm wondering, what did they have in that peace pipe? I'm Will Rogers, K5WLR. 30 minutes of solid amateur radio news begins now. Leading off this week's news, amateurs across International Telecommunications Union Region 1 and amateurs worldwide can breathe a sigh of relief 
as the 144 to 146 megahertz amateur radio segment has been removed from a French proposal to study Spectrum Additional for aeronautical mobile service applications. France had included the band, which comprises the entire 2-meter band in ITU Region 1, for consideration as a European Conference of Telecommunications and Postal Administrations, or CEPT, position for World Radio Communication Conference 2019. Heading into a just-ended CEPT conference preparatory group meeting in Turkey this past week, France was holding firm on the proposal to have aeronautical mobile service share 144 to 146 MHz with amateur radio. The conference preparatory group meeting considered CEPT ECC positions on this and other issues for WRC 19. The International Amateur Radio Union had called the French proposal for 144 to 146, quote, unsound, unquote, and contended that sharing of the current amateur allocation with aeronautical mobile service radio systems would not be possible without a significant likelihood of mutual interference. The French Spectrum study proposal would have had to gain approval from at least 10 CEPT countries at the conference preparatory group meeting with not more than six opposing to appear on the agendas of WRC 19 and WRC 23 where a final decision would be made. Also at the recent conference of telecommunications and postal administration meeting at the insistence of the European Commission a WRC 23 agenda item was considered necessary to address worldwide protection of regional navigational satellite systems from amateur emissions in the 23-centimeter band, 1240 to 1300 MHz. Delegates agreed to a draft World Conference resolution that stresses the importance of the band to the amateur service and explicitly excludes the removal of existing allocations as part of the proposed agenda item. The issue stems from reported incidents of interference to the Galileo GPS E6 signal on 1278.750 MHz. Other amateur radio-related issues addressed at the Conference of Telecommunications and Postal Administrations Conference Preparatory Group meeting included agreement to a European Common Proposal on allocating 50 to 52 MHz to the amateur service in Region 1, which is Europe, Africa, and the Middle East on a secondary basis, with a footnote listing those countries where the amateur service will have a primary allocation in the band, 50 to 50.5 MHz. Agreement to a European Common Proposal on Spectrum to be considered for international mobile telecommunications, which does not now include the primary amateur radio band at 47 to 47.2 GHz. Agreement to a European Common Proposal that retains the current regulatory position in the 5725 to 5850 MHz band that includes secondary amateur radio and amateur radio satellite allocations. No change to an already agreed upon CEPT position on wireless power transmission. This calls for no change in the radio regulations to address the question of operating frequency for wireless power transmission for electric vehicle charging, but leaves open the question of spurious emissions from such wireless charging systems. IARU Region 1 President Don Beatty, G3BJ, said that the IARU team at Ankara, 
the only representative of the amateur service at the meeting, had presented clear and convincing arguments for amateur radio positions and that he was pleased that regulators had recognized the strength of the amateur case. He expressed his thanks to everyone who contributed to the outcome at conference preparatory group meeting. The Conference of Telecommunications and Postal Administrations is one of six regional telecommunication organizations, but viewed as the most influential. The issues now move to WRC 19 in Egypt this fall for final resolution. The International Amateur Radio Union will be represented at the international gathering, which gets underway in late October. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. Amateur radio resources organized this week as Hurricane Dorian threatened Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands and worked its way through the Caribbean. Now with more on this developing story, we go to Allie McClendon, reporting from League Headquarters in Newington. A change in direction spared Puerto Rico, still recovering from Hurricanes Irma and Maria from 2017, from taking a direct hit. The Virgin Islands suffered downed trees and widespread power outages. As of August 29th, Dorian was a Category 1 storm with maximum sustained winds near 85 miles per hour with higher gusts. The Hurricane WatchNet activated on Wednesday for about 9 hours on 14.325 MHz and 7.268 MHz, working in conjunction with WX4NHC at the National Hurricane Center in Miami to provide weather data to forecasters. In an August 29th update, Hurricane WatchNet manager Bobby Graves, KB5HAV, noted that the National Hurricane Center predicted Dorian would make landfall as a Category 4 hurricane along the east coast of Florida on the afternoon of September 2nd. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has declared a state of emergency for counties that are potentially in the path of Hurricane Dorian. The Hurricane WatchNet has tentative plans to reactivate on Saturday, August 31st at 2100 UTC. The ARRL Headquarters Emergency Response Team is also monitoring the situation closely, with ARRL officials in close contact with FEMA, the Department of Homeland Security, and field organization officials in the affected region. W1AW, which had already planned to be in operation for the Hiram Percy Maxim 150th birthday special event this weekend, will remain ready to assist with emergency communications. Visit the ARRL website or the Hurricane WatchNet website for updates on the progress of Hurricane Dorian. According to the National Hurricane Center, Dorian is expected to become a major hurricane on Friday and remain an extremely dangerous hurricane through the weekend, reaching Category 3 or 4 by September 1. Heavy rainfall generated by Dorian could cause flash flooding. The risk of devastating hurricane force winds along the Florida's east coast and peninsula late this weekend and early next week continues to increase, the NHC said on August 29. We're standing by in a ready-to-respond state. Once a more definitive track is known, Southern Florida Section Manager Barry Porter, KB1PA, told ARRL headquarters on August 29. We'll be holding a tri-section conference call tonight to firm up plans, Porter said. The four Florida voluntary organizations active in disaster and Red Cross are in preparation mode. The VOIP hurricane net has also been activated. 
The HWN has continued to closely monitor Dorian's progress. HWN manager Bobby Graves, KB5HAV, said the HWN tentatively plans to reactivate on August 30th at 2100 UTC. Florida's Division of Emergency Management has notified the state's amateur radio emergency service groups that it's soliciting in-state amateur radio volunteers to assist with emergency communication in preparation for Hurricane Dorian. The storm is predicted to make landfall on the southeastern Florida coast on Monday. Volunteers must register with the Florida Division of Emergency Management. Interested volunteers must have completed IS-100, IS-200, IS-700, and IS-800 and have undergone a background check. There are no exceptions to these requirements. Radio amateurs should not self-deploy. The ARRL Emergency Preparedness Department is sending two additional ham aid kits, one HF and one UHF VHF, in response to a request from the West Central Florida Section ARES. ARRL headquarters remains in monitoring mode and has been in regular contact with ARRL's partner agencies. The Hurricane Watch Net has been closely watching the progress of Hurricane Dorian. The new forecast track does not look good, HWN manager Bobby Graves, KB5HAV, observed. The Bahamas are forecast for a direct hit late Sunday afternoon when Dorian is a Category 4 hurricane. Next stop is currently forecast to be near West Palm Beach as a strong Category 3 hurricane. Graves said that after it makes landfall, Dorian is expected to turn to the northwest and move up Florida's east coast. No matter the location of landfall, suffice it to say that unless something major changes, a huge area of Florida will be impacted by this storm, Graves said. The Hurricane Watch Net will activate on Saturday at 2100 UTC and remain in continuous operation on 14.325 MHz and 7.268 MHz. Following the direction of the ARRL Board of Directors, ARRL has incorporated changes to the rules for the ARRL-sponsored contests and DXCC, prohibiting automated contacts. These changes also apply to the worked all states, including Triple Play and Five Band WAS, VHF UHF Century Club, and Fred Fish W5FF Memorial Awards. The changes are effective immediately. A resolution at the July ARRL Board of Directors meeting pointed to growing concern over fully automated contacts being made and claimed for contest and DXCC credit. The rules now require that each claim contact include contemporaneous direct initiation by the operator on both sides of the contact. Initiation of a contact may be either local or remote. Responding to inquiries noting the lack of 4U1UN activity, the United Nations Amateur Radio Club indicated on its Facebook page this week that it's making slow but steady progress in its efforts to get the station back on the air from UN headquarters. The main difficulties in getting 4U1UN up and running again, following its displacement by renovations at UN headquarters, have been administrative and organizational, the club team said. The group explained that as a result of UN headquarters renovation, the room on the 41st floor of the 4U1UN radio equipment was relocated to the UN Broadcast Conference Support Section, 
and is now off-limits. Please do not think that United Nations Amateur Radio Club members gave up and are doing nothing, the club said in its post. After the successful activity of 4U70UN back in 2015, with the support of the UN administration, we were able to secure a tiny 20-square-foot room for the club's needs on the ground floor of the building. With no opportunity to run a feed line from the ground floor to the top of the building and the tenuous hold even on the tiny bottom floor shack space, the club is in the process of installing a remotely controlled station on the 41st floor. The broadcast and conference support section is responsible for security of all UN communication systems and only authorized personnel may be there, meaning club members must be accompanied by representatives when they are permitted access. Over the past weekend, several UNARC members, representatives of UN services, and guests had an opportunity to continue equipment configuration. An assembled 19-inch rack and part of the equipment were disconnected during delivery to the 41st floor so that the BCSS personnel could hand-carry the equipment up several flights of stairs to the top floor. After four hours of work, the connections of the Stepar Big R vertical antennas were restored, a new SDA-100 controller was installed, and a remote rig 1216H was connected for easy remote access, the club said. The antenna was then tested and configured. The United Nations Amateur Radio Club says remote access from the first floor now works thanks to a separate Ethernet cable run up the entire height of the building for the club's use. Operation of the ACOM 2000A amplifier also was tested with the antenna. The station's Elecraft K3 transceiver had to be pulled from service and sent out for repair, however, after it was discovered to have suffered earlier static discharge damage. We really hope that in the very near future, after debugging and setting up all the equipment, we will finally be able to proudly look at the work done and begin to appear steadily on the bands, the club said. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, your amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. The FCC on August 26th announced that it had entered into a consent decree to resolve an investigation into whether the lighting fixture business Seasons 4 Inc. of Tuano, Virginia violated FCC rules by marketing LED products as the company's S4 lights without the required equipment authorization, labeling, and user manual disclosures and by failing to produce certain required test records. These rules ensure that radio frequency devices marketed in the United States do not interfere with authorized communications, thereby maintaining network integrity and security and protecting consumers, the FCC said. As part of the resolution, S4 Lights admits it violated FCC rules and will implement a compliance plan and will pay a $25,000 civil penalty. The investigation concerned S4 Light's compliance with equipment authorization, labeling, user manual disclosure, and record retention rules in effect at the time of the violations, which included Parts 15 and 2 and Section 302, Subpart B of the Communications Act of 1934. 
According to the consent decree, the investigation stemmed from a 2017 complaint that a Christmas tree display using S4 Lights products at the Columbus, Ohio Zoo and Aquarium had caused harmful interference to authorize wireless communications in Powell, Ohio. Some of the rules in effect at the time the violations occurred were subsequently amended, effective November 2, 2017. As a result of the consent decree, S4 Lights avoids a hearing into the question of its basic qualifications to hold or obtain any FCC licenses or authorizations. In an effort to more effectively address HF digital technology issues, ARRL President Rick Roderick, K5UR, has reactivated the ARRL Board of Directors HF Band Planning Committee. The six-member panel, chaired by First Vice President Greg Wyden, K0GW, will primarily focus on the spectrum allocation issues that have gained increased visibility with discussions on accommodating automatically controlled digital stations, many employing WinLink email. The committee will also discuss operating frequencies for FT4, FT8, and other digital modes. Wyden says the committee will meet next week to chart its course. Reactivation of the HF Band Planning Committee came out of discussions during the July 2019 ARRL board meeting. ARRL is not trying to shut down digital communication or shut down WinLink in particular, Wyden said, adding that ARRL recognizes WinLink's proven track record in emergency communication. His committee also will consider Winling supporters' calls for an expansion of the automatically controlled digital stations segment spelled out in Part 97.221 Subpart B of the Amateur Rules. This is not an easy task by any means, Wyden allowed. They're not making more bandwidth. He said this is especially a problem on 40 meters. We're well aware that Winlink is the de facto standard supporting emergency communications in many parts of the country, but we have to figure out how it can operate with other modes so that everybody can communicate, Wyden said, without having one mode overrun any other mode. The committee will not address data encryption questions at this point, however. In response to ARRL's 2013 petition to delete the so-called symbol rate limit and replace it with a maximum bandwidth for data emissions of 2.8 kHz below 29.7 MHz, the FCC proposed to eliminate symbol rate baud rate limitations for data transmissions but declined to propose a bandwidth limitation. At its July meeting, the ARRL Board of Directors called for ARRL's Washington Council to obtain FCC approval for several Part 97 rule changes. The board asked for a rulemaking petition to remove the current 300 baud rate limitation, authorize all automatically controlled digital stations below 30 MHz regardless of bandwidth, to operate only within the ACDS bands designated in Part 97.221 Subpart B, require digital stations operating with a bandwidth greater than 500 Hz to operate within the ACDS bands, whether or not automatically controlled, and limit the maximum bandwidth of digital signals below 29 MHz to 2.8 kHz. ARRL initiated mediation efforts for rival parties to reach consensus on all or some of the issues raised in the symbol rate proceeding ended a few days prior to the July board meeting. While those discussions were useful, no consensus among parties was reached for FCC consideration. Wyden said some positions may have been too divergent to find viable middle ground.
we still want to change the symbol rate limitation into a bandwidth limitation, which makes a lot more sense in terms of current and future models, Wyden said. The panel also hopes to work with the WSJTX development group to establish FT4 frequencies compatible with existing band plans. Wyden further suggested that his committee will have to look beyond the current landscape of HF digital modes into what might lie ahead. Currently, most of the terrestrial radio stations in the U.S. broadcast either on the AM band from 540 to 1700 kilohertz or on the FM band from 88 to 108 megahertz. At the end of September 2018, the FCC announced that there were 4,464 stations on AM and 10,867 stations on FM. Due to the crowded nature of the existing bands, it has been hard to introduce new digital radio formats. DRM, or Digital Radio Mondiali, is a digital format designed to replace existing AM transmissions with clearer audio and with just 20% of the power. DRM Plus is the format for VHF-FM. WRNJ radio co-owner Larry Ty has now filed a petition for rulemaking with the FCC asking that the 45 megahertz to 50 megahertz band on the VHF spectrum be reallocated for DRM plus transmissions. In a statement, Ty said, the 45 to 50 megahertz band was allocated to two-way radio users in business and government who have since migrated to higher bands where they can use handsets with smaller antennas. As a result, this spectrum is extremely quiet right now. WRNJ monitored this bandwidth for an extended period of time and heard very few distant signals. There were 660 TV stations between Channel 2 and 7 before the transition to UHF for HDTV. There are now only approximately 60 TV stations in the U.S. on those old VHF channels. There is plenty of spectrum to share with a new service, DRM+, or any modulation, if the FCC really wants to move AMs. Even though the DRM standard has been around for over a decade, it is only recently that it has begun to make serious inroads to the broadcasting scene, with India, China, and Russia showing an interest. On the 11th of September 2018, it was reported that the Russian Federation proposed to use the digital DRM Plus standard for broadcasting on the frequency bands 65.9 to 74 MHz and 87.5 to 108 MHz. It is noted that the implementation of the DRM Plus standard significantly increases the efficiency of the use of the radio frequency resource. In the frequency band of the DRM Plus 100 kHz radio channel, up to four stereophonic programs can be transmitted, including additional information. The standard allows you to enter additional data services, including text, statistical images, the traffic message channel, and also provide the ability to use the emergency systems. With DRM Plus, the number of radio channels is almost doubled and the operating cost and payback period of the new equipment are reduced by reducing the required transmitter power and the available capability of their operation in a single frequency network, which leads to additional energy savings. One of the current problems is the high cost of DRM receivers. Obviously, if the U.S. opted for a new DRM Plus allocation, it would give the format a huge boost. 
If it turned out to be the 45 to 50 megahertz allocation, then it raises the possibility of long-distance reception by means of sporadic E during the summer months or via F2 propagation around the peak of the sunspot cycle. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, your amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. Available as a podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn.com. And now with the latest technology news and commentary from Petaluma, California. This Week in Amateur Radio is proud to present Leo Laporte. Leo Laporte, the tech guy, blowing in the wind. I woke up this morning to a fascinating story. We've talked a little bit, I think, about how Intel's uh, the big chip manufacturer that makes the processors in uh, most uh, computers, not so much phones, but in uh, the laptops and desktops, run up against a wall in... Uh, in manufacturing that's making it very difficult for some reason we don't know why for them to make new chips in they they dis, they designate these chips by the size of the wiring in the chip and uh, they describe it in billionths of a meter that's a nanometer and right now our chips are 14 nanometers and they really want to get down to 10 billionths of a meter that, i don't that's kind of impossibly small I don't, you know, usually they say, well, that's one-eighth of a human hair. I don't even know. I don't think it's even, it's like, um, well, it's microscopic, right? It's uh, 10 nanometers. They, they're having trouble doing it. Don't know why. There's an advantage. It's kind of a weird advantage you have in microprocessors uh, that the smaller the process gets, the less heat, the more efficient, the faster, and oddly enough, the less expensive they get. So it's kind of a magical formula. It's one of the few things, you know, your car to get smaller, faster, better, that generally costs more. <laughs> but not for a processor. It's a very different thing. We've run up against what they sometimes call Moore's Law. Moore's Law, which was formulated by Gordon Moore of uh, Intel back in the uh, dim, dark days of processors, I think before really the the microcomputer revolution in the 60s was that microprocessors the number of transistors we and that's the fundamental unit on a uh, on a micro on a chip a micro is a transistor the number of transistors we can get on a processor will double every 18 months and along with that roughly a doubling in speed every every year and a half and you know it's amazing because it's held true for decades it's starting to fall apart intel hasn't been able to double the number of transistors for some years now. Well, there's. I just read about a breakthrough that's, a, to me, fascinating and may uh, bode well for the change in all of this. They, uh, the, the folks at the Karlsruhe Institute of Technology, which I think is in Holland, KIT, have created a, a, a transistor that uses a single atom. What? <laughs> Well, you, I think you can't get smaller than that. I don't think, well, maybe you could. I should never say never, right? But this is a lot, one atom transistor. It works at room temperature. And, you know, you're getting this amazing benefit of, uh, of microprocessing again. 
it uses very little energy, about one ten thousandth of the energy that our current transistors and chips use, one ten thousandth. So imagine we're getting now, I don't know how much smaller an atom is, but it's a lot smaller. (laughs) One atom transistor, you know, your typical USB memory stick has several billion transistors, right? But imagine if it had several trillion transistors and it used one ten thousandth of the power well, I guess if it had uh, several trillion, it would have to use one one thousandth of the power, but that's still pretty good. Or one 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 hundredth, whatever, I don't know. Orders of magnitude less. That's still pretty good. Now, I don't know how close they are to making this, but they are able to do it at room temperature. Uh, the single atom trans- transistor in the past has worked you know, at extremely low temperatures, like minus 273 degrees Celsius. But to have it work at room temperature is unbelievable. It's metal. No semiconductors are used. And that's why it's such low energy. Every once in a while, you know, you read stories like this and you think, well, the world's about to change. And then nothing happens. So, you know, we see these. I see these breakthroughs. And sometimes, for instance, I remember I was so excited by something called supercapacitors, which were these uh, devices that would hold a charge. They could be charged instantly. Basically, super batteries. They just never took off, except we've seen them in a few applications. Did you ever get an electric screwdriver that you charge in 30 seconds? That's a supercapacitor in there. And now, maybe this will be the most widely used supercapacitor of all time. Samsung's putting a supercapacitor in the S Pen in the Note 9. So the pen holds a charge for 30 minutes, but you, if you want to get another 30 minutes, you just put it in the phone and 20 seconds later, it's ready to go supercapacitor so these things come but they take they take time we learned about supercapacitors a few years ago single atom transistors though is the kind of thing (laughs) that could really change the world a few years ago i might have talked to you about something called uh, cross point technology this is a kind of a 3d memory technology that intel had announced three or four years later they finally started coming out with cross point based memory and uh, storage just this year and it's still, we're still waiting. It's kind of maybe a little hard to, you know, still wait. But it's going to be a, a real transformation in the speed of computing. So the good news is while we're hitting the, the limits of Moore's Law, doesn't mean we're not getting better and faster. It's kind of amazing. Kind of fascinating. All right, I, get it. I have to give you some good news. How about this? What is high tech? What is low tech? I say We say high tech a lot, right? What is that? I don't know what that is. High tech not low tech is a toaster low tech <laughs> alan uh, k one of the smartest guys out there in uh, kind of f- the philosophy of computing once said that uh, any any uh, technology is just something that wasn't around when you were born so <laughs> if you were you know king henry the fourth and somebody showed you a fork and uh, he would have said wow high tech <laughs> or If you were, you know, yeah, if you were a kid in 1904 and somebody showed you a zipper, ooh, fancy, high tech. So what is high tech today? You know, rapidly, the stuff we use every day is becoming uh, so commonplace that maybe that's becoming low tech. I don't think so. I mean, really, a smartphone, that's high tech. An MRI machine, that's high tech. A laptop, high tech. Toaster, not so much. What about, how about this? I have a toaster oven. It's called the June that has built into it Android operating system, a camera, (laughs) and an internet connection. Is that high tech? It's a toaster oven. 
still basically the function is a toaster oven, but it's an internet-connected toaster oven. Hmm. They've just launched the second generation of that. I uh, this is I'll tell you what high tech is expensive. <laughs> that's what that's what I I figured it out. If it's expensive, it's high tech because that June oven when I first bought it a year ago, and by the way, I love it. When I first bought it uh, a year ago, it was $1,400. Now they've announced the second generation, which is, I would guess, in many ways better, $600. Still a lot for a toaster oven, but uh, it has, you know, has a camera in it and all that stuff. Actually, it's kind of interesting. My wife was complaining, something's wrong with the toaster oven. Boy, you don't hear that much. Because it has this uh, thing in it where it identifies what you're putting in there. And it thinks everything is an onion or a Brussels sprout. So you, it, it, when I first got it, you put a piece of bread in there and it'd say, oh, it's toast. It, yeah, really, it had a, that's actually pretty cool, isn't it? It had a camera, not not necessary, not maybe even useful, but it, but cool. <laughs> and the camera in it, it would look at the piece of bread and say, oh, you want to make toast? Sometimes it would think it was a toaster strudel, <laughs> you know, a Pop-Tart. I guess that's what a toaster strudel is. I don't know why. <laughs> they can't say Pop-Tart. That's a trademark. It, it, I'm thinking that's what a toaster strudel is. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, you, you can't say, oh, you want to make a Pop-Tart or toast. So it says a toaster strudel or toast. But then all of a sudden, like about three months ago, everything was a Brussels sprout or an onion. You put a piece of bread in there. It says, you want to make Brussels sprouts? No, I want a toast. And uh, yeah, my wife said, you need to do something about the toaster oven. It's because this is the interesting thing. She mocked me when I said we're going to get a $1,400 toaster oven that's connected to the Internet that will recognize what you put in it and, and offer you recipes. Because if it's true, if you put Brussels sprouts in there, it'll, it'll roast them just right. It'll even say, you know, drizzle a little oil on that. Make sure you put tin foil on the pan and then it'll roast it to the exact degree of doneness. Perfect. And it has a camera, has a thermal probe. A thermal probe that you can stick in, you know, a piece of chicken or whatever, and it cooks it to just the right USDA recommended temperature. Honey, the toaster oven doesn't recognize bread anymore. Because mostly that's what we do in it. We toast stuff in it. It thinks it's an onion. <laughs> and I was puzzling over it. I redid the firmware, rebooted it, because it's a computer, right? It's not a toaster oven anymore. Rebooted my uh, toaster oven. Still thought it was. Then I thought, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I, I reached inside. I cleaned the camera because there's a camera in it. And now it recognizes toast again. That's high tech, baby. <laughs> on the one hand, you could say I have a problem. On the other hand, you could say I've always had a problem, but I've managed to make a career out of my problem. Even I, when I first started doing this, I first started writing for computer magazines in the late 70s. It was, it was for, I knew exactly why I was doing it, to get free stuff. <clears throat> I said, I want to have... This stuff's expensive, and it was. It was really expensive. You think a $1,400 toaster, $100 toaster oven's expensive. No, no, no. Mm -hmm. How about a $1,400 floppy drive for my Atari 800? So I knew I needed to support the habit. So I said, well, how am I going to, how am I going to, if, if I, you know, I love, I, that was the real eye-opener here in the late 70s even. I love this stuff. I always want to have the latest. Whatever it is, I want to have the latest. How can I do that, I thought, in my little young man brain oh if i work as a reviewer in the industry if i cover the industry maybe i can get some stuff for free or at least subsidize my interest and it worked it did except now here i am <clears throat> 40 years later 
I have to buy $1,400 toaster ovens because nobody will send you a for, for free a $1,400 toaster oven. Now you got to buy that. And I'm getting ready. Actually, really why the, my thoughts are going this way is I'm gearing up because this is, next month is going to be a most expensive month. Apple alone, you know, now next month we're going to have who knows what that iPhone, the new iPhone is going to cost. the sky's the limit. It's an iPhone. People will pay anything. So I got to get that. New iPads. Oh, yeah. That's there. There's another thou down the drain. New Mac uh, minis. Really? Yeah. Oh, and and they're not just everyday Mac minis. They're professional. That's the rumor. They're going to be high end. Oh, you know what that means? Expensive. High tech means expensive. That's what it means. I've concluded. But uh, I do it for you. I just hope you understand that. I uh, I spend thousands of dollars on Apple gear every September just so I can talk to you and tell you whether you should spend that money. Isn't that nice of me? Aren't I generous? Aren't I a nice person? I prefer to think of it that way. That's my, instead of just, you know, <laughs> a nut spending ridiculous amounts of money on high tech. Which, by the way, maybe that's the definition of high tech. That uh, two years later... It's worthless. It's useless. Uh, that was high tech in 2016. Leo Laporte, the tech guy. Are you ready for another trip into amateur radio history? I'm Bill Continelli, W2XOY, and I'll be back in a moment with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives here on This Week in Amateur Radio. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, your amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air, available online at www.twiar.net. This is Bill Continelli, W2XOY, with Amateur Radio History Headlines. 1947, the Atlantic City Conference. Amateurs lose the top 300 kilocycles of 10 meters from 29.7 through 30 megacycles and will lose the 14.35 to 14.4 megacycle segment on 20 meters. But they will gain a new band at 15 meters, which will run from 21.0 to 21.45 megacycles in the future. To compensate hams for their loss, the FCC allows them to use the 11-meter band, which runs from 26.96 to 27.23 megacycles, on a shared basis with industrial, scientific, and medical devices. TVI is starting to become a problem. The ARRL determines that Channel 2 is very vulnerable to TVI and recommends that it be eliminated, but the FCC removes Channel 1 instead. Also in 1947, the transistor was developed by Bell Labs. 1948, single sideband is fully described in the amateur publications. The FCC creates Class A and Class B CB radio between 460 and 470 megacycles. 1951. The FCC completely reorganizes the amateur license system. The Class A, Class B, and Class C licenses are replaced by the Advanced, General, and Conditional Class respectively. 
three new license classes are created, the Amateur Extra, Novice, and Technician. The Technician class is created for experimentation, not communication, and has privileges only above 220 megacycles. Novices are given limited HFCW subbands, 75 watts, and crystal control only. They may also use phone on 145 through 147 megacycles. The novice is a one-year, non-renewable license. This has been Amateur Radio History Headlines with Bill Continelli, W2XOY, for this week in Amateur Radio. Registration is now open for stations for Scouting's 2019 Jamboree on the Air, or JODA. It will take place during the third weekend of October. You can register online at www.jotajoti.info using your free scout.org user ID. Use the same site to register for the 2019 Jamboree on the Internet. Bill Stearns, NE4RD, has been named the Boy Scouts of America National Jamboree on the Air Task Force Chair. He has activated a number of JODA and Scout camp stations from the Montana Scout Council and served on the 2017 National Scout Jamboree K2 BSA and 2019 World Scout Jamboree NA1 WJ staffs. In upcoming special events, W3B will be operating from Hermitage, Pennsylvania until September 2nd as the Mercer County Amateur Radio Club celebrates Bull Day, the 104th anniversary of Bull Farm Park. From August 30th to September 1st, the Northeastern Indiana Amateur Radio Association will be operating as K9A in Auburn, Indiana for the Auburn Chord Duesenberg Festival. On September 1st, Ursinus College in Collegeville, Pennsylvania will be operating as W3ZZ to celebrate the college's 150th anniversary. A few stations will be active in the upcoming week to commemorate the 150th birthday of ARRL co-founder and first president Hiram Percy Maxim, W1AW. ARRL's Hiram Percy Maxim Memorial Station, W1AW, will be active for a birthday celebration event on Saturday, August 31st, until Monday, September 8th. The event is open to all radio amateurs, and the objective is to contact as many participating stations as possible. I'm Steve Ford, WB8IMY, and this is the Propagation Forecast for Friday, August 30th. During the last several months, the sun has been without spots for 88% of the time, believe it or not. Now, that situation can change quickly, but the few spots we do see tend to be brief and rather weak. The sun is still active, however, and there are two large holes in its atmosphere that are sending two blasts of solar particles our way. The first should arrive this weekend, and the next should reach us early next week. So, for the next week, it looks like 80, 60, and 40 meters are your best bets for DX. On VHF and UHF, there have been substantial tropospheric openings on 2 meters in the central U.S., and this entire area of activity is forecast to move toward the east coast by this weekend and into early next week. And now with this week's satellite update, here's Bruce Page, KK5DO. This being a holiday weekend, I thought I would give out some of the satellite rover information. Jack and 7MJ is on a two-week road trip from Cheyenne, Wyoming to Bowling Green, Kentucky. The trip will be from August 28th through the 31st. He will then be heading to Tennessee, Arkansas on September 3rd and 4th and then head towards Oklahoma, Texas, and New Mexico, ending up in Arizona. He will operate the FM satellites. 
Tony, KD8RTT, will be in Peru from August 31st through September 7. He will keep his Twitter account up to date with his operating schedule. Do not forget AMSAT Spain. They will be operating AM1SAT from all Spanish grids from September 9th through the 15th. They will operate all the amateur satellites. This is Bruce Page, KK5DO. And now, with his special segment on tower climbing and antenna safety, here is Indiana's own Greg Stoddard, KF9MP. One question I got via email concerning tower-mounted electronics and where to start. Here's what I did on my latest 900 megahertz install. Concerning feed lines, I used the 900 megahertz band for a one-way link between my recording studio at home and the local repeater for airing this week in amateur radio. Feed line loss at 900 megahertz is horrible unless you intend to spend lots of money on pressurized semi-rigid feed line. One solution to this problem is to mount the electronics on the tower and limit the feed line to say two or three feet. It's easy to run 115 volts AC up the tower. Make sure the wires you choose to install are the outdoor type with three wires. Also check with the tower owner to be sure it's legal to do so. Probably any lighted or registered tower would require you to to run the power wires through conduit. Actually, running conduit on the tower is rather easily since it's generally in a straight line. Okay, so you've installed the power to the place where you intend to mount the electronics and antenna. Your next job is to find a suitable cabinet. If your space requirements are small, like the size of a small HF rig, you're in luck. For those needing to obtain and tower mount a larger cabinet, here's how I handled a couple of those projects. First, we gathered all the equipment to be put in the cabinet on the tower and arranged it to take up minimal space but allow sufficient cooling airflow. Then we located a cabinet that came close to the size and height and width. I took it to a local welding shop and had them cut all the way around the outside, splicing five inches of steel to make it deeper. After the bill was paid, I sealed it with silicone and paint and tested it with a water hose for a watertight seal. I did install two drain holes in the bottom just in case. For smaller projects, marine battery cases work well for housing tower-mounted electronics. You'll need a mounting bracket of some sort and some holes in the box, but they're cheap and durable. Hamfests are good places to look to pick up plastic boxes for outside mounting. I found several with molded-in nuts for mounting, clear plastic doors with key locks for real cheap, my favorite two words. Some common mounting devices for electronics on the tower are hose clamps, antenna U-bolts, most brass screws and nuts, as well as custom-made brackets from scrap steel. If you live in an area with a large industrial area, try to get to know someone that works as an industrial electrician who can help you scrounge old steel electrical cabinets, scrap steel, wire, and other hardware. Most of my best outdoor installations were made from old control cabinets destined for the scrap steel bin or the landfill. And while you're building your tower-mounted box, be sure to consider how to safely put it on the tower and gain access to it. Remember, money spent on books and videos relating to tower safety is always money well spent. Invest in your safety soon. Don't be a statistic. This is Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, reporting for This Week in Amateur Radio. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, your amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air, available online at www.twiar.net.
This is Classic Rain 3. I'm Will Rogers, K5WLR. Here in Classic Rain 3, you'll hear a special report that was filed by 220 Notes newsletter editor, Art Reese, K9XI, that will bring back painful memories to our longtime 220 enthusiasts, and we'll hear some tips on good repeater operating practices that are just as valid today as they were when these were voiced 30 years ago. In 1985, a Chicago-area repeater known as The Bear, the broadcast employee's amateur repeater, became Chicago's most listened-to machine Wednesday nights with its weekly Bear Information Service, coordinated by Hap Holly, KC9RP. A major contributor to the BIS was Art Reese, K9XI, a driving force nationwide in the 220 community. In the 80s, the future of the 220 to 225 megahertz amateur band was in serious jeopardy. UPS, the United Parcel Service, was seeking a continuous band of frequencies for its untested ACSB amplitude compandered sideband technology. Here's a report written and voiced by Art about the related congressional hearing on the FCC in Docket 8714 that would reallocate 220 to 222 megahertz from the U.S. 220 megahertz band for what eventually would become Abandon Spectrum by UPS. Hi, I'm Art Reese, K9XI, editor of 220 Notes Newsletter, with a special report. Congressional hearings on the FCC and Docket 8714. Thursday, May 11, 1989. The first congressional hearings involving the FCC's handling of the matter of Docket 8714 was held before the House Subcommittee on Government Information, Justice, and Agriculture, chaired by Representative Robert Wise of West Virginia. This set of hearings was part of an umbrella of many hearings strung together, covering problems brought to the attention of Congress involving various government agencies. The FCC itself was to be brought into hearings covering several matters, of which the Docket 8714 situation was just one. ARRL lobbyists had arranged for this matter to be brought up after spotting notices in congressional papers. There is one hitch, and it was an important one. The list of witnesses for the amateur radio side was dictated by the subcommittee staff. Ross Merlin, WA2WDT, is a federal government worker who attended the hearings, and he provided the lineup. The ARRL team consisted of Carl Thompson, section manager from West Virginia, Dave Sumner, executive vice president of ARRL, and Richard Rudman, chief engineer, KFWB Radio, Hollywood, California. Chris Imlay, N3AKD, is the attorney for the ARRL. Chris told 220 Notes that subcommittee chairman Wise was totally sympathetic to the cause of amateur radio, his late father having been licensed for over two decades as WA8AYP. Uh, Wise was absolutely sympathetic. He mentioned early on in his opening statement going up on the hill and operating uh, outdoors for emergency preparedness with his father. And, uh, you know, he's talking about field day. He referred to the... Uh, the president talks glowingly of a thousand points of light, and here we are trying to take away from that. But not all of the representatives present were friends of amateur radio. Again, Chris Imlay. We had a couple of really aggressive, unpleasant congressmen. We had one who was totally dedicated to our cause. Fortunately, the one who's dedicated to our cause happened to be the chairman of the committee. Who's against us? McCandless in English. McCandless, uh... This is from Palm Springs, basically the Riverside County area of California. 
The other anti-amateur congressman was Glenn English of Oklahoma. If you're listening to this and you're from either area, the Riverside area of California or from the Oklahoma area, you might want to drop your congressman or Mr. English or Mr. McCandless a line telling them your feelings. For the most part, the witnesses for the ARRL were okay, but the real star of the show for the amateur radio side was the witness for the Department of Defense and the National Communications System, Dr. Dennis Bodson. Ross Merlin, WA2WDT, relates. Dr. Bodson's testimony was exceptional. It was wonderful. He was just terrific in his presentation. Extremely knowledgeable, extremely well-versed in the various aspects. And since he was representing DOD and NCS, it was very, very credible, very valuable evidence. Unfortunately, by, by the time he was on, it was down to only the two principal members of the subcommittee. Christopher Imlay comments. Dennis Bodson was just terrific, and, and he waved around a memorandum of understanding between the ARL and the, and the National Communication System, which the FCC had claimed it, it didn't think existed. He shows up and, and says, here it is, and that the FCC knew about it. The United Parcel Service was also there to testify. Under questioning, the witness for UPS, a Mr. Hughes, admitted that it didn't make too much difference to UPS where their new ACSB system went as long as they had one contiguous frequency band and that at the present state of their project, it would cost them absolutely nothing to move. That was a most telling point in our favor. But when it came to the FCC's witnesses, Dr. Tom Stanley and Julian Knapp of the OET, things began to get very interesting. Numerous violations of the Procedures Act turned up. Listen to Ross Merlin tell of one such exchange. Um, there was stuff about the reply comments and the short deadline and all that. And Mr. Stanley mentioned, well, we accepted every comment we received. We did not reject one single comment, even if it was after the filing deadline. And something was said about, well, how are we supposed to know that you're ex accepting comments after the deadline? Well, obviously they knew because we had comments from about 12 amateurs. Yeah, the rules say no more comments after such and such a date. A dozen people happened to send comments in and they happened to be accepted, so the rest of us are supposed to somehow magically know that it's okay to ignore the rules and send the comments in late. It was just a ludicrous statement on his part and it course went unchallenged. The, the, I cannot believe the depth of the lack of knowledge of, of, of how to regulate I'm hearing here. You'll, you'll go wild when you get a hold of the transcripts, but that might not be for three to six months. An even more telling exchange is remembered by Chris Imlay. So anyway, Wise says, well look, you know, you've proposed to relegate these amateurs to a three megahertz um, reservation up here where they had five before. He said, yeah, but that was a secondary allocation. And uh, Y says, well, yeah, but I mean, isn't it true that they had a de facto primary allocation because the government radio location wasn't using it very extensively? And uh, Stanley said, yeah, that's right. And Y said, so isn't it really true then that you can understand why the amateurs are upset? Stanley said, yeah, I can understand it. They're going from 5 megahertz to 3 megahertz. I can fully understand why they feel that way. And Y said, and you could take those 3 megahertz away from them tomorrow, couldn't you? And Stanley said, well, I'd give the amateurs a high degree of assurance that they'd never have to move from there. And why I said, just like we told the Indians that, right? They'd never have to move from the reservations. You're listening to a special report about a 1989 congressional hearing regarding the FCC's arbitrary reallocation of the bottom 2 megahertz from the 220 U.S. amateur band to the United Parcel Service UPS. We'll conclude this report written and voiced by 220 Notes Editor Art Reese, K9XI, 
for the Bear Information Service after this break for station ID. This is Classic Rain number three. I'm Will Rogers, K5WLR. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, your amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. Available as a podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn.com. Ross Merlin again. There are all sorts of really fascinating questions and answers, like when the FCC guy referred to, well, moving the control links from 220 down to the other control links on the 148 megahertz band. There aren't any. Yeah, you and I know that. The FCC guys were a little confused about reality. Oh, you're kidding. Well, they're not him. They don't, they don't know this technology, and they're trying to regulate this technology from quite a distance. You just can't do it with technical things. And another one, this time from Chris Imlay. Why, they asked Tom Stanley, you know, what monitoring studies did you do? You know, well, they didn't do any. They relied solely on the repeater directory. But that repeater directory isn't a listing of anything but repeaters, right? He said, right. But he said, but we're not dealing with real people here. This is the only listing of facilities that we had. Talk about an inflammatory remark. All was not peaches and cream with the amateur side, as you might guess. Both Chris Imlay and Ross Merlin had a few thoughts on this. We have time, however, only for Ross's. I don't know all the rules on how to impress your congressman, but I think if we had hit them both barrels loaded with Administrative Procedures and Regulatory Flexibility Act information, and then have that backed up by the broader concerns expressed by Dr. Bodson, the FCC did not adequately consider the Defense Department's objections in this proceeding. I think that would have been a powerful presentation because it's within the purview of what Congress can do. It will be a while before the outcome of these hearings is known. Already there are rumors that the Senate may be interested in holding hearings of their own on the 8714 issue. The record is still open in the House subcommittee for input from amateurs who have relevant comments to add. I personally am adding my own. The biggest thing that you can do is to write your congressperson and ask them to support these hearings. There are other outcomes as well. During the hearings, Tom Stanley let it be known at least one important bit of information. Chris Imlay. Stanley testified that they were going to complete their consideration of the, of the reconsideration petition uh, either by the end of this month or, or into June. So it's coming right up. That's true. That means it's bad. Uh, except that I think they got a little scared after the hearing. A lot of very knowledgeable and important people, both in government and in this hobby, thought that we'd never see the day when Congress would investigate the Docket 8714 mess. This time, the news is for them. It may not have been perfectly done either, but it was a start. And from here, we need to keep pushing Congress until right and justice prevails in the Docket 8714 case. Our thanks to Ross Merlin, WA2WDT, and to Chris Imlay, N3AKD. This has been a special report. Congressional hearings on the FCC and Docket 8714. For the Bear Information Service, I'm Art Reese, K9XI in Chicago. One of the fine reports written and voiced by 220 note editor Art Reese, K9XI, for the Bear Information Service in the spring of 1989. Up next, some tips on good repeater etiquette written and voiced 30 years ago by Nina Molina. 
KA9WJZ. When VHF repeaters were first constructed about 30 years ago, our amateur radio forefathers realized that a set of ground rules would have to be established in order for this new technology to operate smoothly and successfully. But as time went on, new hams joined the hobby as well as the repeaters. And there was always the possibility that these new hams were derived of learning the ground rules. Plus, as the old saying goes, old habits die hard. With this in mind, let's take a look at some important repeater ground rules in this month's edition of On the Air Tips. Number one, listen first. Never turn on your radio and just start talking. There might be a conversation in progress, and you'll be the one who'll look like the fool. Number two, keep your calls short. This is especially true during rush hour periods. Many people want to use the system, so if it's possible, QSY off to a simplex frequency. Number three, pause between transmissions. This one can really be a problem with some people, despite modern repeater technology. Many forget that the repeater's courtesy beep is there to make you pause for any braking stations as well as to reset the machine. If you're operating on a system that has no beep, make it a practice to either let the repeater drop or wait about three seconds or so in between transmissions. Number four, allow braking station immediate access. It should be crystal clear without any explanation, but many people seem to abuse this rule. When a station breaks in or signs his call, turn it over to him immediately. Don't just put him into the rotation. You never know what his traffic is. Enough said? Don't over-identify. This one is a personal pet peeve of a lot of people. A bad example is the hams that identify after every transmission. FCC rules mandate after every 10 minutes. Also, there's no need to say, this is K9XYZ for ID. Why else would you be giving your call? Roundtable discussions. Make sure not to leave anyone out of the roundtable. This is called the repeater shuffle. Also, make sure to give the name or call sign of the person you're passing it over to. This will avoid doubling and long periods of silence. Probably the most important tip of all, please be sure to practice courtesy and consideration. Remember that amateur radio is a hobby and a privilege. If you do something considerate for someone else, they'll more than likely reciprocate. Also keep in mind that if we all remember to try to pause a few seconds in between transmissions and suppress the urge to over-ID, we can make a good repeater even better. With on-the-air tips, I'm Nina Molina, K9WJZ. And that's it for Classic Rain number three. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, your amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. Foundations of Amateur Radio The hobby of amateur radio has been around for a long time. It was here before I was born, and it will be here after I become a silent key. The same is true for you. While there is a recurring discussion about the death of the hobby, the reality is that our community changes continually. People come and go all the time.
Reasons for change are as varied as the number of people you care to look at. From interest through to family, from money through to time, from boredom through to excitement, from life through to death. As our community fluctuates, our skill level varies. We see new people come into the hobby, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, ready for a new adventure. At the same time, we have people who are experienced, or jaded, or both, participating in the community and finding themselves answering the same questions over and over again. What radio should I get? Is this radio better? How do I do HF? How do I get my license? Where is everyone? How do you participate in a net? Which antenna should I buy? What is a QSO or a QTH? How come this and why that? At some point, I was that person, and I have no doubt that at some point you were or are that person. The challenge in maintaining a semblance of community coherence is to balance the needs for new and aspiring amateurs with the expectations of those already in the community. How do you answer the same questions while staying fresh and encouraging, when all you really want to do is ignore the noise and get on with the hobby? The answer is simple. You need to recognise that the change in the hobby is fundamental. New people coming in, new technologies, new hardware, new modes, new rules, new customs, all of it is in flux, all the time. It shouldn't be seen as a threat, but as par for the cause. Something that is part of our community and part of why and how we exist. To draw an analogy with something else, cooking. We've been doing that for a while, some suggest as far back as two million years ago. Every day new people learn to cook, new people invent or reinvent recipes, cooking classes abound, television shows with competitive cooking, new ingredients, new tools, new techniques and relearned old methods, there's celebrity chefs, awards, and the more you look at cooking, the more you understand how it changes and continues to change. In many ways, cooking and amateur radio are the same. The idea of teaching your child, or a friend, or a person on social media how to cook something is accepted as how it is and how cooking evolves. In amateur radio, we can do the same. It's easy to dismiss silly questions, or to give snide answers, or to ignore new arrivals, but that's not something that grows our community, strengthens it, or broadens it. Of course, how much you participate in this is the real yardstick of how much of an amateur you really are. Said in another way, if an amateur calls CQ into a dummy load, does anyone care? One of the challenges as a new entrant into the community is to figure out where to go and how to learn more. It's never been easier than it is today, even if you think that it's hard. In a bygone era, you had to go to a library, or to find another amateur, or go to a club to even know that our hobby existed. These days, the access to our community is within reach for any person on the planet. We have endless resources in the form of websites, books, both electronic and paper, clubs, virtual and physical, social media, podcasts and articles such as this, video channels, and an endlessly growing and evolving community that cannot help but document its adventures and exploits. Amateur Radio today is as close as the nearest search engine, and as far as you want to take it. Never be afraid of asking a question, and consider it a rite of passage if a grumpy bugger tells you off for asking a stupid one. The worst question is the one you never asked. 
I'm Ono, Victor Kilo 6, Foxtrot Lima Alpha Bravo. Most of those attending the just-ended Youngsters on the Air or Yoda summer camp in Bulgaria were first-timers observed Bunty OE3VVU, a participant this year. Some 80 young radio amateurs from 27 countries convened near Sofia on August 11th to the 17th to, as he put it, connect and learn from each other. Monty said the successful 2019 summer camp demonstrated that Yoda is growing quickly, noting too that 40% of the Yoda summer camp attendees were young women. During the week, campers engaged in a variety of workshops that included such activities as building VHF and HF antennas and assembling electronic kits, which, for many, meant learning how to solder. Monty said the focus of the activities and presentations involved learning from each other. Yoda is shifting more and more towards a youngsters for youngsters approach, where youngsters teach each other rather than relying on older generations for input, he said. A number of participating youth teams presented their youth activities. As an example, he cited a presentation by the Finnish team that offered insight into the Nordics on the Air subregional camp. The main goal of the Yoda summer camp is to give youngsters the ideas, knowledge, and experiences they require to go back to their home country at the end of the week and start their own youth activities, he said. The practical workshops are mostly easily reproducible so that youngsters could use them to introduce new young people into the hobby. For example, youngsters might do a kit-building workshop at a local school or use the antenna built at the camp to do a summits-on-the-air activation together with some new youngsters. Some regional camps such as those held in Finland, Italy, and Germany in recent years are becoming more common in Region 1, with the next set for late September in the Czech Republic, followed closely by a camp in the Netherlands in December. The idea behind a sub-regional camp is to bring together around 30 youngsters for an extended weekend, he explained, noting that these gatherings offer another avenue to attract newcomers to amateur radio and show them how interesting and exciting it is. Monty pointed out that the camps can gain radio clubs new members, generate excitement among existing members as they organize the event, and be put together with a reasonable budget as the camp in Italy costs participants just 25 euros a day. He anticipates many other youth teams will want to stage sub-regional Yoda camps of their own. What the participants learned at the Yoda summer camp will be an invaluable resource for organizing sub-regional camps and youth activities on any scale, he concluded. Bulgaria's International Amateur Radio Union Member Society, BFRA, sponsored the 2019 Yoda Summer Camp. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. And finally this week, September 1st marks the 160th anniversary of the Carrington event, 
the strongest geomagnetic storm known to have hit Earth since at least the 14th century. The event was named for British astronomer Richard Carrington, who first viewed and sketched the huge sunspot complex on the sun from which a gigantic solar flare, a coronal mass ejection, erupted as he watched. Within hours, Earth was virtually enveloped by an aurora borealis that was visible even at the lower latitudes and into the tropics. It was a truly spectacular light show that in some places turned night into day. When the flare interacted with the Earth's magnetosphere, however, it was another story. This was the Victorian age when practical wireless was still a few decades off, but the auroral phenomenon, as it was called then, had a remarkable manifestation of magnetic influence on telegraph wires. So considerable was the effect that the New York Times reported telegraph operators were able to disconnect the batteries that normally operated the system and were working by the atmospheric current entirely. Although the operators subsequently were able to reconnect their batteries, the storm continued to affect the lines. A telegraph manager in Pittsburgh reported streams of fire emitted from the circuits. In Washington, D.C., telegraph operator Frederick W. Royce was severely shocked as his forehead grazed a ground wire. A witness said an arc of fire jumped from Royce's head to the telegraph equipment. The Times account quoted an operator in Worcester, Massachusetts, who said, During 10 years' experience in telegraphing, I have frequently observed the effect of the aurora borealis on the wires, but never before have I seen it so grand and appalling. Operators said that at times the polarity of the battery power supply would become reversed. One moment the batteries would begin to boil over and we would have so strong a circuit that the armature would not come away from the magnet. The next moment there would be no current at all, a report from Quebec recounted. Based on examinations of ice samples, scientists believe that geomagnetic storms two and three times stronger occurred prior to the 14th century. After the Carrington event, scientists began paying a lot more attention to solar phenomenon and sunspots. This Week in Amateur Radio is heard on nets and repeaters all across North America and around the world on great repeater systems like our flagship repeater, W2GBO, on 146.940 MHz, serving the Tri-Cities of New York State's Capital Region. This Week in Amateur Radio is produced by Community Video Associates Incorporated. Now, for the staff of This Week in Amateur Radio, this is Jeff Rahner, WB2AEQ, saying 73 until next week. This Week in Amateur Radio is copyright Community Video Associates Incorporated. All rights reserved.